Welcome to Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast powered by Gong. We're your hosts, Devin Reed. And I'm Sheena Badani. Revenue intelligence is a new way of operating based on customer reality instead of opinions, making data-driven decisions based on facts instead of opinions or guesswork. And it's made up of three success pillars, people intelligence, deal intelligence, and market intelligence. You know, the things all revenue teams need and care about. Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals and share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market. You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it. So Sheena, I'm going to put you on the spot to start today's episode. Are you ready? I'm ready. One through 10, how would you rate your listening skills? Oh, my listening skill is probably a lot worse than what I think it is. <laughs> I will say a seven. I would agree with you. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm the judge of who's a good listener per se, but in talking to you, I think that you're a great listener. Um, and I feel comfortable putting you, on, putting you on the spot a little bit here because as we'll hear today, as we talk to Andrew Sykes, the CEO of Habits at Work, um, he kind of put me on the spot. I admittedly kind of jumped into it and uh, you, we'll hear. I won't give it away too much. But yeah, we, we covered today something that salespeople know is important. Uh, revenue professionals, I would say, probably think they're good at. But mm-hmm. we really dove into listening and empathetic listening today. Mm-hmm. And being intentional. I think that was something that I came away with. Whether it's listening or another habit uh, that you're trying to develop, it doesn't just come with doing it. You have to be intentional about it. And we live such busy lives, or that's an excuse for not practicing that. Um, that I think it's an opportunity for us to step back and rethink about what are we really trying to develop and, and hone in on as professionals and as people, to be frank. Yeah, absolutely. If if you're listening to this and you're thinking, eh, I don't know, I might skip this episode because I'm a pretty good listener. I'm not saying you're not, but I'm promising that you'll be a better listener by the end of this episode. No pun intended, because you're literally going to listen to us. Um, <laughs> but no, it was it was really cool to hear that. And the other big takeaway for me was the difference between using a skill and practicing a skill. Mm -hmm. So if you're interested in getting better at anything, Andrew has some really good advice in terms of how your experience isn't the practice that you need to go from good to great. Exactly. And just a couple tidbits on him. He is the CEO of Habits at Work. They have worked with a lot of uh, leading organizations, Google, Microsoft, Pinterest, on helping to instill their teams with some of the habits. They call them the 12 habits of you know, successful professionals. They, they explain those skills. He also lectures at Northwestern University. So super sharp guy who has been doing this for also, he said 12 years. So there's like a magic number 12 uh, that's going on here. And, and I don't want this to, to, to minimize any of the value. I don't know. He might have the best accent of all of the <laughs> guests that we've had on Reveal. Alex Aline is the, is the leader from the UK, but I don't know. We'll let you guys decide if, uh, if you prefer this accent instead. But uh, let's go ahead and jump into our interview with Andrew Sykes. Thanks so much for joining us today. I've actually met you before uh, at a sales assembly presentation a few months back out in Chicago. And um, when, when Sheena brought, um, you know, she handles a lot of our, our scheduling and our, and our guests. And she brought it to me, she said, Hey, we got this guy, Andrew Sykes. Um, I've heard really good things about him. He sounds really interesting. What do you think? 
And the name was really familiar to me. And so I looked you up on LinkedIn. And as soon as I saw your face, I was like, yes, this is the guy. He, he absolutely brought it in that previously mentioned presentation. And so I am thrilled to have you on Reveal today. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, the, the honor and privilege is all mine. I'm a big fan of and follower of your podcast and the business that you guys run. So Devin and Sheena, thank you for the privilege of spending time with you today. Of course, thank you. of course. And so we like to start with a couple icebreaker questions. And so I'm curious if you have any advice for a productive work from home setup. Maybe you've got something special cooked up on your side. Well, I'm, I'm sure you've heard many people speak at length on this. So I'll share just uh, three tips I found useful. The first is having a separate space that's just conducive to be at work. And I know it's home, but I found that if I stand up, I dress up, I'm much more likely to show up as a professional, even though we've now all been invited into people's bedrooms and homes, and it's much more authentic that way. I also found that separation, especially from my three young kids, is an expert move. Uh, the second one is taking frequent breaks, so taking a walk outside or doing something a little different. And the third one is, as I mentioned on the first piece, standing up to do a lot of your work, because sitting down can really tire you out. So I find standing up to work brings me a lot of energy and transfers some of that energy to the people with whom I'm speaking. And for folks listening, can't see Andrew, but he is standing. <laughs> he has a nice pressed collared shirt on and he looks like he's ready to go. And so he's living the advice that he's sharing. Uh, and, and, I, and I agree. I am big on, um, I, I find working out at home challenging because, uh, you know, you know, home is for hanging out or if you have an, you know, an office, it's not really for working out. So I find myself going to the gym is easier. The, the walking meeting has become my new favorite. I just asked for permission. I'm like, hey, you might hear some cars or some wind, but is that okay? Because I would love to walk around instead of spend, you know, the sixth hour, like you said, sitting and, and staring at a screen. Andrew, you were born in South Africa and you've run businesses across six continents, which is mind boggling. Uh, where's your favorite place to travel in the world and why? I would have to say Brazil. I lived there in 2012 for a year and I just fell in love with the food and the people and the environment. And as you say, I grew up in South Africa under the apartheid laws that separated people of different races. And I remember walking down the street in Sao Paulo one day and there were 11 people in front of me walking side by side. And it, it looked like a rainbow of people from every color that you could imagine, just together, all as Brazilians. And I said to myself, like, this is my place and this is what integration looks like. So any opportunity I get to go back to Brazil, I'll take in a moment's notice. I would love to live there again, but it's my favorite place to visit. So tell us a little bit more about South Africa and how, and how growing up there has impacted you today as a CEO of Habits at Work. Well, it's such an interesting country to come from because although it's part of Africa, the history of South Africa is so rich with uh, influences from the French and the British and the Dutch and many other countries in addition to that. And I grew up, as I said, under the apartheid laws, which separated black people from white people. And that was a bubble environment for me. You know, I was almost unconscious of what was happening in South Africa while the rest of the world was looking on in horror at what was going on. And it's only as I entered my early 20s that, A, I became aware of just how insidious that set of laws were. And at the same time, Nelson Mandela was released from prison after 27 years, and he shortly after that became our president and then the winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. 
And as that transition happened, so much of the law in South Africa was changed or thrown out. So as a young person starting a business then, it was kind of like the Wild West. And we got to try new things. We got to experiment under different and changing legislation. And I'm forever grateful for the enormous opportunity it was for me as a young entrepreneur to try things out in that amazing environment. It's sort of one of those things that might never again occur in the history of that country. And we have a saying in South Africa, in, in one of the languages there, Afrikaans, which is a boer make a plan. And it means a farmer makes a plan, but it speaks to the South African spirit of figuring things out and making a plan. And that's one of the greatest assets I think I have as a foreigner in the US is this South African way of figuring out how to make things work. And I often, often say to my students at the Kellogg School of Management where I lecture that being an entrepreneur is figuring out how to make things work with whatever is around you, people, resources, tools. And that was a good lesson for me growing up in South Africa. And so you are the CEO of Habits at Work. Can you share a little bit more about what your mission at Habits at Work is? At Habits at Work, we're helping people to become better human beings at work. And the way we do that is helping them master conversation skills and what we call these high impact habits. We think there are 12 of them that make you really skilled at having conversations. And so people may say, well, what's the point of being a master of conversations? And our response is, we think all great human achievements started as a conversation between two or more people. And that conversations literally create the future because they draw people into action. They paint a picture of what's possible. And so for sales and customer success people, we think we're in the business as sellers and as uh, customer success executives of helping people make progress in their lives. And what better way to do that through the art of conversation. And, and I imagine as you were starting this company, did it, was it challenging to kind of educate people to believe, like to get people to view the world in that point of view? Was that a challenge? It is. And it remains a challenge because we relate to conversations as if they're about something and that's all they are. And of course, conversations are always about something, but we don't notice that conversations have this creative power. And I often point to, you know, the day you interviewed for the job you have today, that was just a conversation about the job and the salary and the benefits and what it's like to work there. But if you look back on that, that conversation led to at some point saying, somebody saying to you, do you want this job? And you said, not for that pay. And, you know, you negotiated a little bit and then eventually said yes. And it completely changed the trajectory of your life. In a sense, it created the future that you're now living. So it, it takes something to have people relate to their <clears throat> spoken word as being such a creative and powerful force. And that I think will continue to be a challenge. And that's the mission as we, that we're on at Habits at Work is having people see that their mouth is an instrument of creation. That's really interesting. An instrument of creation. Are there any other examples? Like I know uh, the, the negotiation one is great, right? It's, it's an example I tell people when they say, you know, I'm not in sales. And I say, you probably had three negotiation <laughs> calls or conversations today <laughs> uh, without even realizing it. Are there any other maybe like top of mind or more common examples uh, around that as well? Well, let's take one step back, you see, because we, we define selling as the art of making 
helping others make progress in their lives. And so like you, we believe that almost everyone who's in the influence game in any way, shape or form, whether you're a coach, a manager, a leader, or someone who has the title sales or customer success is in the business of selling because they're helping other people make progress in their lives. So there are many examples, I think, where we could take traditional sales skills and have them be applied in our relationship with our family or with other people who we committed to being in service of. So that that might uh, not answer your question directly. Are you looking for some more specific examples around how conversations create the future? I'm just curious. You just strike curiosity in me, Andrew. Uh, <laughs> there's no right or wrong answer, <laughs> if I'm being honest. No, I just think it's really interesting. Um, and it feels like a lot of the way that you view this, I've kind of heard, you know, I've heard before similarly, but it feels like you have kind of a unique spin on it. So I was a little curious just to kind of dive into that uh, a little bit more, but there, there's no wrong answers on the reveal podcast. <laughs> we do sometimes do fact checks though. So yeah. <laughs> do be careful about when you bring up data. <laughs> I hope you do. So you, you talk about these 12 habits. Can you explain how you conceptualize these habits? Were, were there specific experiences that you had? How did you uncover what those 12 were? Yes. So about 12 years ago, we started a research lab called the Behavioral Research Applied Technology Laboratory. That's a mouthful, but we wanted the acronym BRAT Lab because the problem we were trying to solve is how to help human beings create or quit certain habits. And our first great insight was most people really struggle with changing their habits and that they fail because they run out of motivation or they run out of willpower. But in the end, there's this big gap between people's knowledge and their behavior. You know, we tend to say knowledge is power, but what I've noticed is everyone has bad habits. Almost everyone has had those bad habits for a while and they know what it looks like to quit those habits. They just haven't done so yet. So what we realized is that there needs to be some deep thinking about the first question, which is how do you change habits? And then the second question, of course, is, well, which habits should you create that will make the biggest difference in your life and at work? And so we started that research project, which was to figure out for people in sales and customer success, what are the habits that distinguish the extraordinary from the merely good? And in the end, we came up with this list of 12. We, we don't claim that it's the exhaustive or the end all and be all, but it is backed by a lot of research and personal experience over time. And most people relate to these habits as completely obvious. You know, they are things like posing the right questions and listening empathically and telling stories many of the things that we as salespeople know to do, but like so many things in life, there's a difference between doing things pretty well <clears throat> and doing things at a level of mastery. And so we're we in the business of helping people not only create these habits, but through deliberate practice with feedback to turn those habits from good into extraordinary. As someone who knows the importance of uh, listening, active listening, being empathetic, I still find it challenging and I think I'm probably falling into one of these, uh, you know, kind of, I'd probably be a good client for you and maybe other listeners are too. 
what is that gap or maybe maybe it's some of your research or one of the principles andrew like why is it so challenging for someone to know better but not necessarily do better or or let it click into a habit all the way yeah well i think there are a number of traps but the first one is our minds are so sharp that as soon as we understand the need for change we almost tell ourselves that we've created the change so we intellectualize things and assume that the job is done so that's one issue and that's a little uh, abstract but i think the more important issue is we tend to satisfy and what i mean by that is we do things until we're, we're good enough to get by and then we stop trying to improve and my favorite example of that is learning to drive a car if i asked you to rate yourself on a scale of one to ten in terms of your driving ability how good a driver would you say you are devon um, well, my answer and my wife's answer are going to be completely different. <laughs> I would like to say I'm a, I'm an eight. I can't, yeah. I'm no NASCAR driver, but I like to think I'm pretty good on the road. Well, it's interesting you bring up NASCAR drivers because most people are asked this question to say, you know, seven, eight or nine, or every now and then someone says an 11. And then I say, what I didn't do is define the scale. So if a NASCAR driver is a 10, would you still rate yourself as an eight or even above a five? And most people's responses, uh, I guess not, because there's enormous gap between day-to-day -day drivers and the real professionals. And an, an interesting question for us is what explains that gap? And we think there are three things. Number one, you know, when we were three weeks into driving, good enough to get from A to B, we said to ourselves, I've got this. And from that point on, started to drive from A to B on automatic, gaining experience, but not necessarily improving. And when I look back on my own driving ability, like I'm no better today than I was when I was maybe 25. In fact, maybe worse because bad habits creep in over time. So that's the first difference is the intentionality behind getting good. Because professional drivers didn't say, I've got this. They say, I want to be great at this. And as a consequence, they practice with the intention of getting better. They hire coaches who give them the right kind of performance feedback. And it's not time in the car, but what they're doing with that time that explains their performance. And if we bring that back into the work environment, just think about how little time we each get to spend practicing our skills versus using them. And listening is a great example. For listeners, I would ask you, in the last year, how much time have you set aside to practice listening versus you know, listening during a meeting or listening during a sales conversation in order to get a job done? And the answer for most people is not much, if any. And that's why I think we, we carry on being happy with good enough instead of becoming true masters of these habits. That Does that make sense? That is a great point and a fantastic reality check for me as I kind of put myself in that hole pretty early by giving myself a pat on the back and an eight. If, if I'm hearing you correctly, we mistake experience with practice, right? Because I sold for eight hours today or I had sales conversations for eight hours a day, I kind of confuse that for practicing. Am I, am I picking so, that up correctly? Yes, and, and it's a particular type of experience. It's this unconscious experience that you gain from doing something. So there's nothing wrong with experience. We all need it and it's wonderful. But I, I know we've also all met people who have... 20 or 30 or 40 years of experience at something and they're just not that good because in our view unconscious experience is the enemy of mastery 
Whereas this intentional or deliberate practice is the genesis of genius. I love that. That's amazing. I was on mute, but I just said, wow. Audibly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is the quote of the episode. I, I wrote <laughs> I it down. I'm finding it. <laughs> With so much focus on listening empathetically, it only felt right to listen to the data around the concept. A study cited in Business Communication Strategies and Skills found that while most people believe they have above average listening skills, the average person listens with only about 25% efficiency. Imagine only hearing one fourth of the words spoken to every day. Or in other words, imagine hearing fourth day. Yep, that was 25% of the previous sentence. Kind of crazy. Other research shows that only about 10% of us are effective listeners, and it's mostly because we tend to listen as a form of waiting to speak versus truly to understand. More on how you can practice becoming a better listener in the micro action after the interview. How can we make room for that conscious practicing and being intentional about it? You know, as professionals, we are inundated with requests, we're busy. You know, every 30 minutes we have a new meeting. Um, how can we take that into our day-to-day lives? I think the, the first thing to do is to recognize that our calendar is a structure for fulfillment. What I mean by that is we tend to do what's scheduled. So look ahead in your calendar right now for the following week and see where the spaces are that say practice time. And if there aren't any, don't be surprised that you won't practice next week. So the first thing I would, I would urge people to do is put space in your calendar for practice. The second thing is when you get to that time, other urgent things will dominate unless you have some structure to hold you accountable. So I would not only put that time in there, but I would invite a colleague or a friend or a coach to hold me accountable and come and practice with me. Just like showing up at the gym, if you've got a buddy who's there waiting for you to exercise, you're much more likely to show up than if you're relying on your own willpower. I'm a big believer that willpower is a very, very poor choice for strategies to get things done. At least in my case, willpower is often and easily defeated where these structures that call me into being or force me to do what I'm committed to doing are... uh, not not just a crutch, but an enabler of my best intentions. Do you have specific recommendations on what should I, as a sales professional, practice during those blocks of times? Are there specific exercises or tips or tricks that you can guide us on? Well, coming back to these 12 habits, I think that it is useful to practice each of the 12 habits and then to practice putting them together. And the the analogy I love is uh, martial arts. If you think about learning something like Kung Fu, you spend hours, weeks, and months practicing punches and then separately kicks and then separately blocks and rolls or whatever the moves are. And at some point, you get to start to put these things together into moves. And the same is true of sales. At the bottom of it is a set of habits that make you really powerful, if and only if you can put them together into conversations that create these different futures. So in a discovery conversation, or what we refer to as reconnaissance conversations, you'll use the habits and skills of posing the right questions and listening empathically and recreating what you hear. And then once you're clear about a customer's problem and you come back with a solution, you'll use habits like telling stories and presenting ideas and 
handling objections and negotiations. So all of those things that we know as the moves of a seller, at the bottom of it all, they're like the Lego blocks from which great performance is built. And those are the things I would practice, the fundamentals rather than these sophisticated sales moves. And we've seen the same thing in sales training. You know, we consider ourselves the anti-training company in the sense that most sales training, even when it's phenomenal, is quickly forgotten, seldom implemented, and therefore makes no impact. So our view is instead of trying to teach people elaborate sales processes and fancy techniques, just work on the fundamentals and then trust that they'll put them together really, really well. And why I think most people miss this is, as we were talking about with driving, we assume that good enough is good enough. And the truth is, it is good enough. So unless you come from a commitment to be extraordinary rather than good enough, you're disinclined to practice these basics because you think you've got them. Like Devin, I was at one of your sales assembly sessions a couple months back. We were at separate sessions, so we were not there together. But I remember an exercise that you asked the audience to do, which really went back to the, you know, back to basics concept. It was so simple. It was sit quietly for one minute and listen to a story that your partner is going to tell you. After one minute, repeat that uh, story back, you know, to to make sure that you understood what the individual said. And first of all, everybody really struggled to sit quietly for one minute, which seems like that's only 60 seconds. It's not that long. And also folks did struggle to communicate back what they heard in that short one minute period of time. Um, I was quite taken aback and that exercise really stuck with me um, that something as simple as listening to somebody else for one minute is something that we need to work on. Sheena, I love that you bring up that example because it's one of those exercises that humbles even the 30-year super experienced sales veterans who've seen it all, done every program imaginable. And then we put them in this exercise to test their listening skills. And they come out of it often with their jaw dropped, a little embarrassed about how hard it was for them. And I, I think it points to what we were talking about earlier. Even though we have spent many, many years listening in order to speak or to know when it's time to speak, <clears throat> We haven't spent that much time really fine tuning our listening skills so that we can recreate not only what someone says, but even listen at the level of what their emotions are below what they're saying and what really matters to them that's motivating what they're saying. So it's a great example of a little exercise that is humbling, hard, and super powerful if you practice it for just 10 minutes every single week. What are some other ways, Andrew, that folks can self-diagnose some of their good versus bad habits all in the hopes of you know starting to improve those bad habits yeah that is a, a great question and i would like to say the following that we are all self-aware to a certain degree but there is no substitute for feedback and coaching from someone outside of ourselves and i would challenge listeners to really look at this and say Do I have the right and do I have enough of the right coaches in my life? My sales manager, other people or professionals that you hire. Because I think the only way that you can get really good at something is to have someone work with you who has a picture of what excellence looks like, who can give you the right kind of performance feedback so that you get good 
at getting great in record time, because none of us has you know, 40 years to get great at these skills. The skills that make us a great seller today may change four or five years from now. So at the root of all of this, I think, is the art of getting good at getting great, which is the art of being coachable, asking for, receiving, and putting into action feedback. That's great. It reminds me of a Blake Griffin quote uh, for any NBA fans out there. I don't know if you are, Andrew, but he said, uh, um, the, the best people fall in love with the process of getting better. Yeah. And that is I, a great quote. And I found that to be true to myself for, for some of the things I like to think I'm, I'm good, possibly great at. But um, it, it's not really the end result that's as, as enjoyable uh, so much as if you can kind of find a way to, in, again, enjoy the process of, of what you just described. When you work with some of the sales folks, are there any, I don't know, ideal best habits that you've seen successful you know, salespeople have naturally or maybe say, hey, these are the things that we commonly see salespeople gravitate towards uh, to help them be better at their career? Well, all 12 are important, but I would say if there are three that are critical, it is the habit of posing the right questions, the habit of listening empathically to the answers you get, and then be able to share compelling stories that inspire customers to buy and take the steps that you want them to. So those would be the, the three that I focus on most for salespeople. And the reason I think they're so critically important is at least the first two are habits that we think we've got down pat and don't always. And then why storytelling is because so much of the research supports the, the idea that facts and figures, although they can be compelling, seldom change minds, whereas stories just do that job all day long. And they're a lot more fun too. And entertaining is part of what I think is a natural ingredient for a wonderful conversation. But beyond being entertaining, stories are just a, a, almost like a magical skill to bring to any sales conversation. So those would be my, my choice for the top three. Those are great. And I can see their applicability, not just in the professional world, but also personally. If you continue to practice those three specific skills, I think you'll level up your game at work, but also at home and with your family, with your friends. Uh, so critical. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Gina, I love that. And, and I have a story to share about that. Yes. yes. Now, I've, been teaching, I've been teaching people this uh, feedback formula that we use at Habits at Work and at the Kellogg Sales Institute, where, where after a practice session, you reflect on what you did well. You get one did well from your coach. Then you reflect on what you could do differently and you get one do differently from your coach. And about six months ago, I started the practice of asking my son, Lexington, who's seven years old, for feedback on how I'm doing as a dad for him. And the first conversation was a little weird and awkward. By night two, he was an, an old pro at it. <laughs> and the feedback I've gotten has been humbling, to say the, the least, and really pointed to a bunch of areas in my life that I thought I was doing pretty well in, one of which is listening and through the eyes of a seven-year-old, I am an amateur compared to what he wants me to be. And so that's been both confronting and like the best things in life, being confronted by something is an opportunity for growth. So I love your point and I encourage people to take every sales skill imaginable, test it out on the people that you love. Because what's the difference between helping customers make progress in their lives and helping friends and family make progress in their lives? I think the answer is not much. 
that's such a great story. And I am going to take that and do that at home with my family as well. Be careful what you ask for. Yeah, Gina. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know what Zara comes back with because I've met Zara. And I, something else also tells me, you know, seven-year-olds are probably uh, very candid with their feedback. Yes, exactly. Very. very. So we've, we've been talking about empathetic listening already, uh, you know, during this podcast, can we take a bit of a step back and define exactly what that means? How can we be doing it better? What are some of the pitfalls? Yes, because there are so much about this idea of active listening that we want to distinguish. And we don't use the, the words active listening for a very important reason, which is active listening tends to be a show of things that try to demonstrate that you're listening rather than a commitment to being curious and to empathically listen. Here's the difference. To listen empathically means to feel with somebody. So when you ask, well, what does that mean? It's interesting to, to think about how we listen. And if I say to you, like, what is the part of your body that you use to listen? the answer you would likely give is my ears. And the truth is that our ears are there for hearing, but not so much for listening. And I have evidence for that. You know, when you're at home, and I'm sure this has happened to you because it happens to me all the time, and you're talking to your spouse or your partner, and at some point they say, Andrew, you're not even listening. And if you're, you know, if you're smart, you'll say, I'm so sorry, I wasn't listening, and then you'll start to do so. Or if you're dumb like me, you'll say, actually I was listening and you'll try and recreate verbatim for the person what you said and it just makes them angrier. And the reason it makes them angrier is they judge whether you're listening or not, not by whether you heard what they're saying, but whether or not you were paying attention to them. So we define empathic listening as paying attention to another human being using your entire body, all your senses. Yes, of course your ears because you need to hear what's being said but with your eyes, pay attention to what's not being said, the way people are feeling, their body language, their facial expressions, so that you allow yourself the opportunity to feel what they feel, see what they see, and with that, then attend to what you think they need. Because in the end, what's the purpose of listening? It's to enable us to serve other people. And so much of what is said in a sales conversation is said often, frankly, to hide what people are feeling. You know, if a customer's feeling like they don't trust you, they'll say a bunch of things that prevent you from learning what they really care about or what the real issues that they're dealing with. But if you're just prepared to be silent, which is the first step in empathic listening, to pay full attention with your whole body, which is the second step, and then recreate what you heard saying, you know, Sheena, what I heard you say is A, B, and C, but importantly, what I think you feel is frustration or maybe irritation. And if that's correct, what I think really matters to you is having a great relationship with your, your customers or with your children. And if you can relate to people at these three levels of listening that we call them, what's said, what people feel below it, and what really matters to them underneath it all, the response you'll get back is that you really get me, you understand me, you have a sense of the whole world I'm living. And I think that's the ultimate goal of empathic listening is for someone else to say, and Devin, you just understand me completely. 
And given that relationship, why wouldn't I ask you for help in solving my business problems? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you have any perspectives on listening in this manner in remote environments? Of course, we have microphones and headphones and we can listen on Zoom, but you sometimes miss some of those uh, cues of how somebody is sitting their body language, some of those things that you talked about. Any recommendations and thoughts on that, you know, this building this habit in this environment today? Yes. We speak a lot about this in our masterclasses on empathic listening in virtual environments. And Sheena, you point to the first important issue, which is the self-awareness to know that two key vectors of communication are missing. The visual, which is the body language that people have, and sometimes even the vocal if we're dealing with things over email. But in a, in a Zoom environment like this, the first thing I'd say is, Ask your customers to be on video and be on video yourself if you can be. And if you can't be, the substitute for seeing what someone's feeling or their body language is to ask them and to say, you know, this is a difficult environment. And I know that we can't see each other and be in the same room, but may I ask, how are you feeling about this issue? Or what's making you uncomfortable here that you you haven't expressed so far? So it's just having the courage to ask and then close your mouth and listen to the answer. That's great advice. Thank you. I feel, I admittedly feel guilty. We asked Andrew to turn his camera off for this podcast (laughs) only for bandwidth purposes. It's, it's in the service of a greater good. (laughs) Um, you've talked a little bit about some of the research you guys have done. Um, we have one as well, um, that we'll probably put into the podcast, uh, around video, but, you know, Andrew, you mentioned some of the data and research around sounds like listening and these conversations. Are there any findings that are, you know, maybe most striking or most interesting to our audience of sales folks, or maybe just some of, of your favorites? Uh, some of the research I love the most is about the impact of asking questions on customers. And I know you've done a lot of this as well about the number of questions you should ask always being more than most sellers think it should be. But I love the, the research from Brooks and Gino out of Harvard business school that speaks to how asking people more questions has them view you as more credible. And I love it because it's so counterintuitive. You know, we have this story in our heads that if I ask a question, I'm going to reveal my ignorance and therefore I'll look bad where the research says exactly the opposite is true. You look more intelligent. You're more likable because you give people the opportunity to speak about the thing they love the most themselves. And what a great outcome that questions lead to a credibility and a trust boost. And so I've come to, to summarize that research by saying, sometimes having all the answers is not the best answer. You've said my trigger word, which is a good word. One of my favorites is counterintuitive. Uh, I, I love when, you know, we have our assumptions or things that we think, right? And then we look at data and realize that we're, you know, completely inaccurate or, or, or exactly backwards. It's something I can relate to as well, right? I think a lot of us want to step into a room. We want to be you know viewed as credible and knowledgeable. And we often think that entails telling, right? Or, or and as we've discussed, probably the opposite of listening. But if I really think about it in some of the best conversations we've had, maybe in this podcast or any casual ones, I think the people that we do gravitate towards are the ones that do ask questions, 
right? They, they seem not just interested in us, but genuinely curious. Yeah, and Roosevelt, I think, said it best. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And questions are an expression of caring because you care to learn, you care to listen, you care to be curious about someone's life, work, and challenges. Absolutely, yeah. Well, in the, in the spirit of asking questions, I will ask the next one, which is what is your advice to sales leaders who are currently navigating you know, this current economic environment and, and macro environment? What advice would you have for them? Amp up your skills as a coach. Because for all of us, the impact we have is multiplied through the people that we serve as our employees and teams. And if there was ever a time to be a great coach to your team, now is it. And being a virtual coach is a challenge. It's, it's harder than doing it face-to-face. So as sales leaders, and I'm one myself, I'm spending more time thinking about how can I be of service to my team so that they are better and in turn, they kill it for our customers. And yes, yesterday I did a virtual keynote and at the end of it, my hosts told a story about why I was hired. And it was really humbling for me because the story he told was that he spoke to one of my team, Tia, on the phone and she was just such a great example of asking for feedback and practicing these habits that we talk about that he bought the keynote from me without even speaking to me. And that was like such a proud moment. And I think that's what's possible for sales leaders today is to help the teams that you lead being amazing. And you'll get the credit for it in the end because they'll come back and thank you for it. That's great. That's great advice. All right. The, the final question that we'll ask, and you teed it up perfectly by saying you are a sales leader, is, uh, Andrew, how would you describe sales in one word? I like to be succinct, but one word is a challenge. <laughs> And I will choose this word, serving. Serving. Selling is serving or sales is service. I like it. I had had a mental note to myself. I was like, I had a feeling listening might have been your answer. And and don't worry. Again, there are no wrong answers on the Reveal podcast. (laughs) Um, But but love hearing that. And I I think that definitely reflects the conversation and then the insights you shared with us where, you know, you you can't serve unless you're listening, right? And that's that's one of the definitely the key pillars that at least I took away doing my best to to be a good listener to you today, Andrew. (laughs) Well, may I say you have both been extraordinary listeners and it's been a very easy conversation to have. So given what I said about Habits at Work is in the business of helping people become masters of conversation, I hope that people do listen to this to hear two masters in the art of having a great conversation. Thank you both for the privilege of listening to you today. Oh, thank you, Andrew. We really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. And I will have to give some credit to the Zoom mute button, which makes sure that I don't talk over you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really excited for this week's micro action, which is the listening exercise that Andrew mentioned earlier in our conversation. I have personally tried this and it's tough. Here's how it works. Step one, pick a partner. It could be a partner, a child, a parent, or any quarantine buddy. Step two, Have your partner talk to you for two minutes on the following topic. What I'm dealing with at work or at home right now is dot, dot, dot. For two minutes, look into the eyes of your partner and practice being silent to give yourself the opportunity to listen. Practice listening to the words, for the emotions, 
and beyond to the concerns of your partner. Step three, once they're done, you're gonna recreate what you heard at all three of those levels. So state what was said, the exact or paraphrased words, how you think they feel or their emotions, and lastly, what really matters to them or their concerns. Step number four, have your partner give you feedback on how you did. Now swap places and repeat. We often confuse hearing for listening. The two aren't the same. After you try this exercise, use it with your customers until it feels natural and soon a habit will form. Like Andrew said, that's how you truly master a skill and it's one that will have a deep, positive impact across your personal and professional relationships. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday. And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there. And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then. And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal at gong.io.